Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. This is sermon number 84 through the book of Matthew. And uh, we're working through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview. Jesus Worldview, where really we take time to reflect on his opinion, on his view, on his understanding of the world, his context of society, the way that he sees marriage and family, the way that he sees the way our world should work. And yeah, we got a lot of opinions running around still on this earth and in this world and in this city. And uh, as you have, probably just as much as me, just get tired of trying to navigate the waters of figuring out, like, what are we to believe? What are we to think about this? We've got a new issue we've got to discuss and talk about. But there's always a new one on the horizon, it seems like, almost every week. And so instead of trying to figure out and dissect and talk through every single talking point, why don't we just get to the source of truth? The Lord Jesus, he said himself, he declared it. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one will get to the Father or get to God except through me. He either was a crazy guy and a lunatic, or he might have been telling the truth. And so we want to get back to the source of truth in this series I've titled Jesus Worldview and working through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew, and this is the most extensive of the Gospels. And so that's why we're taking time to walk through it. So you get the full package worldview of Jesus. That's what I'm trying to do. Packages up, a little gift for you. Here you go. Here's Jesus' view on the world. And you can reflect back on it over and over and over again. Lay the foundation and then let all of the world's opinions and ideas go through that lens, through that grid. Okay? Matthew chapter 21 in our Bibles, we're going to work through verses 33 to 45, all right? The title of the sermon today is, Seek the Lord While He is Near. Seek Him While He is Found, Seek Him While He is Near. Heard of a story, maybe you heard of this one. It was a few days before Christmas, and the trip this man went on went reasonably well, but he was ready to go home, and there he is in the airport, that good old airport during the holidays. And the airport was full of tacky red and green flashing lights everywhere, loudspeakers blaring, annoying elevator renditions of Christmas carols. And being someone who took Christmas very seriously and being slightly tired, he was not in a particular good mood, almost a Scrooge-like. And as he was going to check in his luggage, he saw a hanging mistletoe. Not real mistletoe, but a very cheap plastic red paint, green paint mistletoe. He was annoyed with their fake attempt, and he just shook his head like, I got to get out of this place. Irritated at all that's going on in the airport, just wanted to get home already, waiting in line, nowhere else to vent. He says to the attendant there at the counter, you know, even if we were married, I wouldn't want to kiss you under such a mockery of a mistletoe. The attendant said, sir, look more closely at where the mistletoe is. Okay, I see it's above the luggage scale, which is the place you would have stepped forward for a kiss. The attendant says, that's not why it's there. Okay, well, I give up. Why is it there? The attendant says, so you can kiss your luggage goodbye. <laughs> Come on. 
Lighten up. You guys get your coffee this morning or what? All right. Today we see a very beautiful overview of the history of salvation told in the form of a parable. The history of salvation told in story form, in a parable form. And I love these because they have depth to them. They, you can look from different angles. You can really pull them apart to try to figure out what Jesus is saying. It has a central meaning, but there is depth in each of the characters and each of the words as we look at the parable. And that's the beauty of telling stories, is that everybody looks at this piece of art or this story from a different angle to see who they are and where they're at, and they interpret based upon what they're working through. And Jesus spoke in stories a lot. He told parables all the time. And the question we have to ask today, is God still working in his grand story today, right now, 2022? Sure, we look back 2,000 years ago and see around the cross and around the gospel coming forth and the church being birthed. We see God working. We see the Holy Spirit showing up. But the real question, is God alive and is he working in L.A., Studio City in particular, today, right now? Is this part of the grand story? Rewind back to the days of Abraham or to Moses or to David or to Daniel or to Jeremiah or to John the Baptist. Are we a part of that bigger story is the question. And the answer is yes, he is. It's interesting to think through what he has done in the past and how it plays into today and the future. And so before us today, we see Jesus bring up Israel, the nation. We see the Old Testament brought in. We see this conversation around what God was doing in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, what he was trying to accomplish there 2,000 years ago, and how that bleeds into what's going on today. We are in Matthew chapter 21 in our Bibles. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? We always stand for the reading of God's word to pay honor to him and remember whose word we are reading. Notice, not my words. Not my words, praise God. <laughs> uh, my words are fickle. My words are like sand. They will fall away. They will be forgotten. But the word of God will stand forever. And so we hide this in our hearts. And my greatest gift to you is God's word. I hope that I can teach it to you in such a way where you can take it home and teach it to someone else. You would disciple someone else through the text. That's all I'm doing here on Sunday morning is discipling you through the text. Matthew chapter 21 in our Bibles, take a look at verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vineyard, to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed the other and stoned a third. And he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected this day, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to another nation, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whom it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable, this story. And we ask now, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the text, that you would open our eyes and heart to see the ancient wisdom you're trying to impart to us today. Help us to receive your goodness and your grace. Help us to see the story that you are up to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We are still in the middle of Passion Week in our text, in the story. And remember, on Palm Sunday, the Lord rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people proclaimed him King and Messiah. As his first act of King and Messiah, he walks into the temple, and remember, he clears out the den of thieves and the money changers, and he condemns the temple. The next day, he sees a fig tree with no fruit on it, and he curses it, and it withers and dies. A picture of fruitless Israel, God's people, and the Lord condemning its works and the religious leaders, this empty shell of religion. He did this through the closing of the temple or shutting it down and through the cursing of that fig tree. Last time we saw the religious leaders challenge the Lord, once again trying to discredit his work and messiahship. But he not only proves his authority, he revealed their fake hearts as religious leaders and revealed the true heart of God for sinners. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are welcome. Though the religious leaders would say, get those dirty people out of here. Jesus says, no, the gospel is for them too. Today before us, the Lord tells another parable giving the picture of what has happened with the nation of Israel and the prophets of old and what will happen to these religious leaders and all who reject the Christ. We also get a glimpse into what God will do and is doing with true believers here and in the future. Look at verse 33. Let's start to break down the text together, okay? Look at verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So again, we have this landowner. He has this land. He plants this vineyard. He puts a big wall or a fence around this wall or vineyard so that nothing will attack it. Nothing can come against it. Nothing can tear it down. No, uh, no animals can get in and eat all the the grapes. Nobody can come in and steal from the vineyard. 
and he builds a tower in it. And then he rents this land out to some vine growers to come in and take care of it and to produce money from it and then to pay him according to their harvest. It's a vineyard. Here are the characters in this parable. We have the landowner who is God the Father. The landowner is God the Father. We have the vineyard that he owns. This is God's people or the nation of Israel. The vineyard itself is God's people. And we have the vine growers, those that he rents it out to. These are the leaders of the nation of Israel, the religious leaders and the leadership of Israel, the nation. Okay, there's a few more characters in the story. Look at verse 34. Now, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruits. The slaves are the prophets of God that he sent to the nation of Israel over and over and over to go and tell them, the religious leaders, the vine growers, to turn back to the Lord. The fruit in our story is the fruit of repentance or a righteous, obedient life. Now allow me to tell the story again for you. We have a landowner who has a vineyard. The landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. He puts a wall around them to protect them. He sends or allows religious leaders or uh, vine growers to come in and to cultivate the land and to build it up. Kings and priests and scribes and religious leaders to come in and teach the people the word of God so that they would produce fruit, righteous, obedient living. And that fruit would bring forth the prophets that would pay back to God his due. God would send slaves, servants, workers into the field to come check out what is going on. And he would see that the vine growers aren't taking care of the vines. That there's no fruit being produced. He would send in these servants, these prophets to come in and say, hey guys, uh, the vines aren't growing there's something wrong here. You need to start turning to God. You need to walk with the Lord. You need to start producing fruit, righteous living, obedient living. But what happened over and over again, God sent the prophets to them. He sent the servants to them. And what did they do? Verse 35, look at the vine growers, the religious leaders, the leadership, the kings and the priests took his slaves, the prophets, and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. The religious leaders in the Old Testament took the prophets and beat them and killed them and stoned them for speaking the words of the Lord. I am working through the book of Jeremiah right now, writing a chapter a day through the Bible. Now I started this long ago, and I will finally be done in April. Uh, but I've written a devotional commentary on every chapter of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'm sorry, from Matthew to Revelation, Genesis to Jeremiah right now. And in just uh, April of 2023, it will all be completed in Malachi. And if you have not been able to join me through the journey, you can do so. A little commercial. Go to LegacyCityChurch.com forward slash compass or Legacy's Compass, look for that in the tab. I call this our compass because it is our guide. 
And I want to impart every single chapter of the Bible to God's people as a compass so they can read through it daily. And so as you read through the chapter, I send you a do devotional on the chapter and you walk through it with me. We walk through it together. So get signed up today for free. <laughs> no charge. Three easy payments of free, 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 okay? But in Jeremiah, what I'm seeing over and over, I love this. I get to comb through the scriptures with pen in hand, circling words, looking at every single word in detail, and try to understand, try to pull together what is happening right there in my own heart, and my own mind. And what I see over and over, I mean, Jeremiah is telling the people, first off, in the beginning, he says, God chose him before he was even born. You're going to be my prophet before he was even born. You're my guy. Wait, don't I have a choice in the matter? Sorry, bud, this is your calling. Hmm, God working behind the scenes. And Jeremiah, they call him the weeping, the, the prophet of sorrows. Weeping prophet. Because he goes to God's people over and over and says, guys, God just spoke to me again. He does it like a hundred times. He gets the word of the Lord, 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 the word of every single chapter, two, three, four times, the word of the Lord came to him, the word of the Lord came to him. And he goes back and says the same thing over and over and over again. He says, turn back to the Lord or you are going to face the music. Turn back to him. Their city, he told them, will be destroyed. They will lose everything, many of them their lives, and many more sent into slavery under the, under the king of Babylon if they do not turn. They were killing their children, this nation, God's people, sacrificing them to the god Molech, Melech. Moloch has often been portrayed as a bullhead idol with outstretched hands over a fire and they would set their babies in his hands and burn them up as a price, a priceless, a great sacrifice. Sad, but not far from today, we are just a bit more sophisticated. They were worshiping other gods, living in great rebellion, hurting the innocent, taking advantage of everyone around them. And God told them over and over and over again through Jeremiah, turn to the Lord. Stop living this way. Stop saying you're God's people if you're living that way. You're not God's people. He kept sounding the alarm as loud as he could. And they didn't like him. They hated Jeremiah for just telling them what God told them. Listen to Jeremiah 37, 12. Jeremiah started to leave Jerusalem to go out to the land of Benjamin to, to claim his portion there among the people. But when he reached the gate of Benjamin, the captain of the guard seized him and said, you were deserting the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah says, this is a lie. I'm not deserting anyone. But the captain would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and he took him to the officials. The officials were angry with Jeremiah and they beat him. And they placed him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe. Jonathan the scribe. For it had made, they had made his home into a prison. Verse 16, so Jeremiah went into a cell, into a dungeon, and he remained there for a long time for speaking the word of God to them. Later, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah and received him in his palace where he asked him privately, is there a word from the Lord, Jeremiah? I know you've been in dungeon for a little while. Is there a word from the Lord? Do you want to tell me the Bible today? And Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon. I'm sorry, that's the word of the Lord. 
Then Jeremiah asked King Zedekiah, how have I sinned against your people or your servants or these people that you have put me in prison? Why'd you put me in prison? I just told you the truth. Why are you mad at me? Where, where are your prophets who prophesied to you claiming the king of Babylon will not come against you or this land? The king had his own prophets saying, prophesy, tell me, tell me what's going, what the word of the Lord is. And these prophets just wanted to please the king. And so they'd be like, hey, king, king of Babylon's not going to come against you. He's actually not going to take over the city. Long live the king. You're going to prosper. And Jeremiah's like, these dudes are lying. I'm telling you the truth. You're going to fall. You better turn to the Lord. Jeremiah says, but now please listen, O Lord, my king. May my petition come before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the scribe or I'll die there. That's how badly they were treating them. Next chapter, chapter 38, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah, speaking. This city will surely be delivered in the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Then the official said to the king, This man ought to die, for he is discouraging the warriors who remain in the city as well as all the people. But speaking, by speaking such words to them, this man is not seeking the well-being of these people, but their ruin. Jeremiah has been seeking the well-being of them by telling them the truth. You're going to get destroyed if you don't turn to God. You're going to get wiped out. You're going to destroy yourselves. Verse 5, here he is, replied King Zedekiah. He is in your hands since the king can do nothing to stop you. He, like Pilate, washes his hands of the matter. So they took Jeremiah and they dropped him into a cistern. You know what a cistern is? This is a, like a, a giant um, hole that had walls of concrete, like 30 feet deep, like ceiling high, like this, 30 feet deep. It's a giant wall of concrete filled with water. The rains would come and water would flow into this, and this is their drinking water. Well, this one was empty, and they put Jeremiah in there. It says they lowered him with ropes into the cistern, which had no water but only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. A eunuch in verse 9 went to the king for Jeremiah, and he says, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have dropped him into the cistern where he will starve to death, for there is no more bread in the city. You know what happens? I just wrote it today. Just as Jeremiah said. The king of Babylon shows up, Nebuchadnezzar. And he takes over the city, and he takes this king Zedekiah. As he tries to run with his men away from the city, they capture him. And they take King Zedekiah, and Nebuchadnezzar slaughters his sons right before him. Then they take fire, and they burn out King Zedekiah's eyes. Jeremiah tried to warn them, this is going to happen. You must turn to the Lord. And the city of Jerusalem would leveled by fire. They dismantled the whole thing. You know what happened to Jeremiah? King Nebuchadnezzar says, bring me Jeremiah. Jeremiah shows up. And the king says to him and says to his guards, let this man go free and let him do whatever he says to do. And Jeremiah, it says, the text says he goes back to his home and he lives amongst the people. And God goes on to say, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he said, the reason, the reason you were saved from all of that is because you trusted the word of the Lord. That's it. You believed me at my word with all of your heart, so much that you actually lived it. Because so many people in America don't live this stuff anymore. And that is the problem. Jeremiah suffered greatly to get the word of the Lord to the people, and they never listened. It's so sad. 
Verse 36, move on in our text. It says that he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. More prophets God sent to his nation. More prophets. These are only a few. These are only the ones you know. But God sent 50, 60, 70 prophets to his people. But prophets like Moses, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Isaiah, Jonah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, John the Baptist, many more. But they would not listen. God's people wouldn't listen and turn to him. And they killed and beat and imprisoned the messengers that God sent to them. Uh, it's another crazy trying to tell us to turn to God, throw him in the mud. Stone him, kill him. And you know what's crazy? <laughs> I got to say this. You know what's crazy? If you work through the, Jerem uh, the book of Jeremiah verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I mean, you will feel this overwhelming sense of like, wow, here's this nation that God's trying to bless with all of his heart and they literally won't turn to him, and they just keep doing wrong to Jeremiah. They keep hurting innocent and killing people and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. God's anger is building. His patience is long, but it's building and building and building. And then the one verse that we all remember from the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts I have towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts not to harm you, but to give you good, to give you a future and a hope. But do you know that that is not that book? He wanted to do that, but it did not happen. And we take that verse and we use it as if God is bringing hope in the future for us. But I hope we're not living in rebellion. Because the opposite is going to happen just like those in the book. That's what's crazy. It's like we literally allow our eyes to glaze over all of the context of a single book to focus on one positive moment, which if you just read the context, it is gnarly. That's what I've learned. That's what I'm learning through this. The people have been doing this for centuries. They turn to the Lord, then they turn away from the Lord. They turn to the Lord, then they turn away from the Lord. And great discipline has to come upon them. God allows his own city of Jerusalem, the nation, the whole thing to be burnt to the ground. They're sent into slavery for 70 years by the king of Babylon who burned the eyes out of that king. He was brutal. And after 70 years, there is a hope and a future. But 70 years is an entire generation of people who never saw it. Isn't that wild? It is a testimony to us because God is saying, even in this parable, I'm sending prophets to you. I'm sending people to you to tell you the truth. You must turn to the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. Verse 37, but they didn't listen to the prophets. Now, did they? They didn't listen to those servants. Verse 37, but afterwards, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. The owner of the vineyard says, uh, I'm going to send my son in there. Who, who is obviously the heir to the vineyard, the part owner, and is going to take over this joint in the future. And so he's like, surely they're going to respect my son. And we know that God the Father sent his only son into the world. For what reason? Jesus says that I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. I came to save you from your sins. 
I came to save you from hurting yourself. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Messiah, the Christ. I came to save people from their sins. He came in such a beautiful fashion. This is the season we're celebrating. He came as a little babe born in a barn. In, in the back shed of your house. He's born in there with the lawnmowers and stuff. That's where he was born. He's a carpenter. He swung a hammer for a living. He came as a broken man, man of sorrows like Jeremiah, saying, turn to God. Turn to him with all your heart. I'm here. The Savior of the world is here. I was born to die for you. That's my whole mission. That's the whole plan. They sent God the Father sent his son into the vineyard to tell the nation of Israel, the Messiah is here. I'm here to save you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to resurrect these vineyards and make them produce fruit and more wine than you could ever imagine. And a party's going to break out. And what do they do? Look at verse 38. When the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. When they saw the son, they said, let's take his inheritance and kill the boy. This is crazy. This is madness. This is exactly what happened in history. The Messiah, the son of God, they took him and they said, you are not of Israel. Still to this day, I have conversation with lots of Jewish people and, uh, and uh, just all kinds of different, but I, I was living in uh, Encino Tarzana for quite a while, and the Hasidic Jews walked the streets there on Shabbat, and I got to know some of the neighbors, and we would talk, and lots of different questions. And I go to the gym there in town, and I get to know a bunch of the Jewish guys there. And many people, many even in Israel and here even today, many think that Jesus is, is Catholic. They think Jesus is Catholic. They don't realize... He's a Jew, born in the Middle East, born in Israel, uh, of Jewish blood, of Jewish descent. He, he, he went to synagogue. He grew up going to Jewish school. He, he, he's learned just like every other Jewish boy. He literally came into the nation of Israel as their Messiah. They hail him as King and Messiah on Sunday, and they crucify him on Friday. They say, we reject you as Messiah. You are blasphemous. And we will treat you as we think you are a criminal. We will crucify you. Verse 40, therefore, when the landowner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers, the religious leaders, the vine growers who killed all these servants and slaves who were sent in to try to help the vines grow, the prophets? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. He says, you don't want the vineyard? You don't want it? Then I'm just going to take it away. I'm going to take it away from you religious leaders. I'm going to take it away from you vine growers. And I'm just going to hire a whole nother group of vine growers who will produce fruits and will pay to me the rent that is due. They're going to make the most amazing wine factory you have ever seen. They're going to show up and do what's supposed to happen. When the landowner, God the Father, shows up to see what his people have done to his son and his prophets, what will he do? He'll bring these wicked people to an end, and he will take the vineyard that he owns 
And he will give, as he has given in the past, the privilege of being God's people. They were God's people. He gave them the privilege of being called God's people. He will take it away from them as a nation, and he will give it to anyone who wants to come. Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone hungry? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Oh, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the water. He that has no money, come ye buy and drink. It's, It's such a great passage because it says... It basically says, even if you don't have any money, come and eat. Come and drink. You're welcome in the party. What's crazy about that is it's so backwards from the ways of this world now, isn't it? If you ain't got no money, you can't come in, sorry. Oh, you don't have, sorry. But the king of the universe says, no money. Excellent. Come on in. We got a seat for you right up front. You're sitting with me. The text is telling us that God basically tried to give the most beautiful, amazing gift to this nation, but they didn't want it. And it is the story of today as well that there are many who don't want to sit at the table of the king. And so God says, then fine, I set up a banquet for you. I threw a most amazing party for you. I invited the kings and queens of the earth, but they don't show up. So I'm going to the poor on the streets. I'm going to anybody who wants to show up, and they will sit with the king. It took me quite a while to understand, but this has always been the case. All who believe on him are God's people. Did you know that? It doesn't matter if you have a certain blood or heritage. That doesn't get you into heaven. Having faith in God is what is said to be true and gets you into heaven. Believing him at his word, making him Lord and Savior of your life is what saves you and makes you God's children, not the nation or bloodline you were born in. Did you know that? That matters so much on this earth, but in God's kingdom, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. Oh, you're part of that family? Oh, you came from that bloodline? Oh, you have that status? Oh, you have that money? It's a big deal in our town, but not in his town. He says to those who think it's a big deal, do you know my bloodline? Do you know who I am? That's all that matters. Took me a long time to understand this. I thought there was something magical about the Jewish people. And there is to some degree. They were the nation chosen to be God's people. They were the nation chosen to receive the law of God through Moses. They were the nation chosen to show God's glory to the whole world. They were the ones chosen. Do you know why they were chosen? The Bible tells you in the Old Testament. Because they were the least and the weakest of all the nations. So God picked them. You know the last to be picked in the, t- in the game? He picked them. The last to be picked so that he could reveal his glory through them. They were the nation chosen to show God's glory to the world, but they didn't want it. 
And we see this over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's the entire story of the New Testament. Just read it for yourself. And so just because a person is born with Jewish blood does not automatically make them a believer of God. I have met many Jews who are atheists. Many who keep Shabbat but have no desire to read the Bible. I lived in Israel for a time and I thought that the land was holy. And it is to some degree because much of what happened in our Bible happened there. And it is special, a special place in history in my heart. But there is nothing magical about the dirt. Did you know that? It's just dirt. I thought something magical was going to happen when I stepped off that plane to live there. I'm like, oh my gosh, the holy land. And then somebody cut me off. <laughs> somebody got in my face and screamed at me. And I saw rabbis smoking down the street, walking around. I'm like, what's going on here? I, 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 they, in the streets, they're, they're asking people to come and pray, come and pray, come and pray. I'm like, dude, they're asking people on the streets to come and pray. This is amazing. You take the defelin and you take the phylacteries, you put them on your head and you wrap around your, your arm. And, and I'm like, man, I want to go pray too. I walk up. They say, well, um, do you, um, are you Jewish? I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, a lot of people think I'm Jewish. And it's like, well, is your mom Jewish? And uh, he's like, um, I said, I don't actually know. Well, uh, if your mom's not Jewish, then sorry, you can't pray. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, sorry, you can't pray. It's not for you. It's for other people. Sorry. Move on. I was shocked. It's just dirt. I've slept on it. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee, me and my buddies pulled out our sleeping bags and we slept there on the shore. In the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus walked on water, it's just a lake. Like Silver Lake. Like Big Bear Lake. It's just a lake. Yep. Again, it doesn't, God doesn't care about your bloodline, your skin color, your culture, your geographic location, your wealth or status. All he cares about, all he has ever cared about is where is your heart? Do you believe me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? This is what makes a person a child of God or not. It is a matter of faith. Faith is the currency of heaven. John chapter 1 verse 12, but to those who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Everyone's a child of God. No, they're not. Only to those who received him, only to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. So let me ask you today, who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe God at his word? Do you trust him with your whole life? Do you walk in a righteous, obedient life with him because you actually live what you say you believe? Do you actually live what you say you believe? That is the question. You say, I'm, I'm going to fly as I jump off this uh, cliff right now. Really? I believe it. Okay. Are you going to do it? Nah, I'm not going to do it though. Why not? You said you believe it. Nah, but I'm not going to actually do it. No. But you believe it. This is the conversation. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, do you never, have you never read in the scriptures? Jesus quotes the Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous 
in our eyes. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. Jesus is talking about himself being the cornerstone of the universe. Now, cornerstone, if you didn't know, how many of you have been to see the Temple Mount in Israel? Anybody? Yeah. All right. So the Temple Mount in Israel has blocks that are literally, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 feet long by like uh, 15, 20 feet high, maybe 10 feet high. One giant block on the bottom of the Temple Mount. Um, it would be a block like the size of um, the cargo uh, trailer that an 18-wheeler pulls. Entire limestone block that size sits there. Boom! And it is the cornerstone of the Temple Mount on which will be built up, built up, built up. And on the top of that foundation, they will put the Temple of God. But that giant stone is on the sand or on the dirt. And that thing is the corner which holds the foundation of this entire structure, okay? Um, they didn't have rebar back then and concrete, and so this is how they did it. They somehow moved these giant blocks around and put them in place. It's absolutely incredible if you ever get to see it and stand next to them. But Jesus says about himself that he is the cornerstone of life. He is the cornerstone of the universe, the one all the word of God is built on. This whole thing right here is built on him. He is the word. He is the one you should build your life on. But the builders, his nation rejected this cornerstone, and this is why their man-made temple will fall. Because they remove the cornerstone and there's just sand under there. There's just dirt under there. And they don't have a solid cornerstone to hold this whole thing up. Their cornerstone is made of sand and the building will fall because they have rejected the very piece, the very stone that holds it all together. It is the Lord Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. It's really the truth. And it goes back to our bigger story. Anyone who rejects and turns away from him and rejects the cornerstone, the same will also happen to their life. Jesus tells the parable of the man building his house on the sand. Do you build it on the sand or are you building it on the rock? Verse 43, therefore I say to you, Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. This is a very scary verse. Because that is exactly what God has done. He literally took the kingdom of God from Israel and has given it to the kingdoms of the world. Those who are Christians. Those who believe in the Son of God. The Messiah he sent. The Christ. The Christians. The Christians. The followers of the Christ. Of the Messiah. That's who we are. We follow him. He is the cornerstone of our life. And because that nation rejected him, Many believed, many believed, from Abraham to Moses to David. Yes, all of them believed. There were many in Israel that believed all along the way, but there were many who rejected God, said, forget it. And so God says, I'm opening the floodgates into heaven. I'm opening the gates to all of the nations of the world. And the word of God, though the nation of Israel held the Torah, they held the Tanakh, they held the Old Testament in their hands, and it was to be a shining light to the whole world of God's glory. He says, now the word will go out 
to the whole world and people hear the gospel message that we, we have sinned against God and we need to come back into relationship with the God who made us to get this whole earth back on track. The thing is all messed up because it's in the hands of humans hating and hurting each other. We need to get back into a relationship with the God who made us, the God who is love. Teach us how to love and serve one another. And that is what brings harmony back to this earth. So he took the kingdom of God away from them, and, they have, and he's given it to the nations of the world. But this is also a very scary text, because when I put it into today's context, it almost feels like America was also a nation that has been given the kingdom of God, and great revival has broke out here in the past in this nation. But it feels like our nation as a whole is turning away from the Lord. One of the commentaries I read is J.C. Ryle. And when he was writing his commentary on this text, it was written in the 1800s in England. And as I'm reading the commentary, he is talking about how they are the Christian nation of the world. England. And though they, and they have had the privilege of the kingdom of God flourish in their day. But it seemed in his mind that they were starting to reject the Lord like Israel did long ago. He was comparing England and Europe to Israel long ago as I am comparing America to Israel long ago. He was doing that. And now, as we look back on the last hundred years, we see England and Europe, who used to be a leading force of Christianity, are now far from it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers of all time, came through London. He was there. His church is still there. The Brooklyn Tabernacle, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the Tabernacle is still there. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. The Brooklyn is uh, Jim Cymbala in, uh, in, in New York. But he built that church right there in the middle of England, and it was a leading force of Christianity still to this day from the 1800s. But now they are far from it in a post-Christian state. Though I have heard small revivals are starting to break out again in England, it's been a long, hard road for church plants in Europe. And when I see America now, I feel like we are heading towards the same state as Europe. People no longer want to define marriage. They don't want to define family or morality. People want to live as they want to. Everyone live however they want. Whatever feels right in their own eyes, do it. They have no moral compass. Anything goes. Anything that feels good or right, we should pursue, the world says. Carpe diem, seize the day. Do whatever you want. There is no boundaries, no moral compass. Do whatever we feel. You know what the Satanist John 3.16 of their Bible is? The John 3.16, the motto of the Satanist Bible that Aleister Crowley wrote, it's called the Book of the Law. You know what their motto is? Do what thou wilt, for this is the whole of the law. Do whatever you want, for this is the whole law. You know what happens? If you do whatever you want, whatever you feel inside, just pursue every single thing that you feel inside, you will destroy everyone around you. You'll destroy yourself. Think about all the dark things you've ever felt or thought, and how do you know which one is right on the cusp of good and which one is right on the cusp of bad? How do you know? If there is no moral compass, we have no boundaries. Can you imagine if everyone lived out everything they ever felt? Every person who cut you off on the freeway, man, I wish I could run them off the road. 
Can you imagine? Every time you feel lust for that person in your marriage, you pursued it and you destroyed your marriage and family over and over and over again. We never learn. Oh, interesting. Let's have no definition for anything in our society so that everything's confusing. Well, what is it? I don't know. Everything is confusing. There is no truth. There is no morality. There is no absolute truth, they declare. And then we say, how do you know that's absolutely true? Uh, because there is no truth, right? There is no absolute truth. Thus, what you're saying is not true either. Oh, truth by definition is exclusive. We must have direction. If there is no moral lawgiver and standard, then anything goes. And as long as society votes on it, I guess it's good. Do you remember the Nuremberg trials? The SS soldiers stood there after the Holocaust, killing six million Jews, and said this, we are just following the law. It was law. We were just following the law, so we are not guilty. You know what the prosecutor says? We adhere to a higher law and standard, the moral of God. Thus, you are guilty for murdering your neighbor. And that is how they prosecuted them, because they were obeying the law. Be careful when a society starts to move in a direction away from the word of God, that moral compass. That society will fall. Look at the Romans, 800 years. Look at the Greeks. Look at them. Watch their morality fall. Trace it. And you will see, when all of it goes away, they fall as a nation. There is no foundation for law and society that anything goes. God, God's word is the foundation for all of morality, society, nations, families, marriages. He is the creator, and he has told us how to live. Amen. And the one who rejects it will find themselves confused and lost over and over and over again. I dare you. That's what is happening right before our eyes with this next generation. The young people have no clue. They don't. They're so confused. It's why at alarming rates they're killing themselves. Because they're confused. Verse 44, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The cornerstone, Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah. This stone, he will either be a foundation that saves you or a stone that will crush you and scatter you like dust. It is the truth. The word of God divides. It saves or condemns. There is no in between, and that is my goal as I preach the word of God, that it will save those being saved, and it will scatter those and push them to accountability, knowing there is a judge until they are ready to repent. I, I, I anchor people in the church, or I scare them away from the church for a season, because I hope that when they are ready to walk with God, they know where the truth is. That dude ain't messing around. He's just telling me what the Bible says. So if I want to hear the truth, I know where to go. That's my job here in this city. Verse 45 and 46, and we close. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Oh, you think? <laughs> and although they were seeking to seize him, they wanted to put him to death, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. They knew Jesus was speaking about them indirectly. They knew. But they allowed themselves still to be self-deceived. He was speaking to them like Jeremiah. He's telling them the truth. 
but they allowed themselves to be self-deceived. Church, self-deception is scary because you know the truth is speaking to you and telling you to get away, but you choose not to acknowledge the weight of what is happening and you walk away from the Lord. Don't do it. God says, today if you hear my voice, do not turn away. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. If God is speaking to you, allow your heart to soften, open up, and walk with him. He's not looking for people to get lives perfectly in place. He's just saying, walk with me for the next 30, 40, 50 years. I will guide you. A plant doesn't grow overnight. It's a little bit at a time. We got to turn to the sun. You got to let it shine on you. You got to start receiving water. Praise God, the Lord is patient, huh? He has not just done just justice with us or been just with us. He hasn't set up the throne right now and judged everybody on this earth. Now has he yet? There is still time. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you watch through history, if you watch the Lord, his patience is long, but it can be exhausted. And then he shows up as a judge. He's there as father, waiting for his kids to come home. And then one day he shows up as the judge. And he says, I cannot let this wickedness go on any longer. I'm sorry. God is patient towards you and me today. We have his word. We have his church. We have an opportunity to seek him today right now. He hasn't cast us out, praise God. Turn to him with all of your heart now. What are you waiting for? Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that, they may have com that he may have compassion on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly. He's not just ready to pardon you. He's ready to bless you. Fill your stocking with more you could ever imagine. He is the greatest gift. What is he trying to get you to do? He's just trying to get you to start loving your neighbor. Just love, loving your God, loving your neighbor. That's all he's trying to get the earth to do. Come close to me. Why are you running from me? Why do you love your sin? Why do you love hating and hurting each other? What are you doing? That's all he wants. That's the story of salvation. That's the story of history. The door is still open, praise God. The throne's not set up yet. Our job is to introduce them to the king. Amen? That's our job. We know him. Let's go and show him to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would convict us of sin and cause our hearts to turn to you with all that we have. Oh God, I pray for the Christians here today that they would stop messing around. That Lord, we would, we would not be saying things with our lips, but secretly just completely in the opposite direction in our hearts. But Lord, that we would confess you as Lord and then walk with you as Lord, that you would truly be our Savior. I pray for a true repentance in our church. I pray for a true repentance in our city. I pray for a true repentance in our state. God, would you turn us to you with all of our hearts? 
And would we see great revival break out, Lord? Please don't close the doors on the city of this nation. Please, God, be merciful to us. And I pray for those who don't know you today that they would contemplate what it means to walk with you as Lord and Savior, what it means to walk with the Lord Jesus, what it means to come into relationship with you through your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Father, I pray that you would do that miraculous work in us and we would be able to introduce many in this city to our King. In this season, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.